0: Alright, I am going to start a minute and a half early because I think pretty much everyone is here who's going to be here, and uh, I want to give plenty of time for our class this morning. Um, You may be wondering, where are the booklets for today? I didn't make any because this is what we're doing. I am going to summarize and review the concepts we've talked about, and then I want to give like 20 minutes for question and answer interaction. Um, we keep adding weeks to this class. This is another week added. Um, I, I want to make sure that as I'm explaining these concepts that you have an opportunity to ask questions. And since we'll be making a sharp turn to think about conscience issues instead of strictly doctrinal issues, I thought maybe a and a interjected here while these things are on your mind might be helpful. And then we'll do... I don't know, it's shaping up to be like four or five weeks on the conscience. We'll do a follow-up Q&A on that as well. Um, And that one, of course, you know, is is debated as doctrinal issues are. I think when it comes down to it, when you ask someone who's really animated and frustrated with you disagreeing with them about a doctrine, if you ask them, how does this change the way that we live? More often than not, they're going to say, well, okay, I don't know how. I don't know how we're different in all of life because of our disagreement about, you know, what whatever the case might be. But when you start talking about conscience issues, um, people will hold very strong opinions and it's very visible in daily life. So that one's a little bit more complicated. So I wrote the first lesson and realized we would be here for two hours. So Josh gave me permiss- permission to start segmenting that out a little bit. The other thing with conscience issues is I think people can easily agree with the concepts that I want to teach, but the problem is we're all very emotionally connected to whatever our conclusion on a conscience issue is, so I want to give you time to be able to allow your emotions to catch up to your brains on a couple of the things that we'll talk about. You know, I I need that too. I was uh, describing to someone, I forget who, Uh, I was... There was a thing on Wednesday night where something occurred and like there triggered something in my mind of like, oh, I don't like that. Even though I'm not like rationally opposed to it, I just grew up being told this is wrong to do. And even though rationally I'm saying it's not wrong to do, I felt like it was wrong for for a second. Our emotions can override our brains. And sometimes that's really good, right? Uh, But other times it's not. So let me pray. I will talk to you for about 20 minutes, and then we'll do some Q&A. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are drawing people together in the gospel, that you are transforming us into the image of Christ. And We ask for your wisdom as we seek to know what it means to be a doctrinally faithful church, but one that uh, recognizes that we don't know everything, that, that people have different opinions on different matters, and that we can still be united together. Help us know Uh, How that can be, and then also help us to be discerning to recognize those um, errors and false teachings that often creep into the church that should not be tolerated. Uh, We pray for your guidance now. In Christ's name, amen. All right. So I've kind of grounded this whole class on the assumption that unity is really, really important, that Jesus and the apostles care about unity, and that if you read through the New Testament, you will find more admonitions for unity than you will for separation and division. And that's a little bit uncomfortable. Um, When you think about the kind of churches that Paul is talking to, it's shocking that he doesn't tell them, hey, you guys can't get along on this, so why don't you start one church over there and you defend that belief and you start a different church over there and defend that one. No, instead he says things like, hey, even these guys who hate me, Are preaching Christ, they even have some bad motives, but I am rejoicing that Christ is preached nonetheless. Well, that's the kind of impulse I want each of us to have is to be Paul-like Christians who, even when we recognize weaknesses and failings of other Christians, if Christ and the essential doctrines of the faith are being proclaimed, those are our people, even if they might look at us and say, You're you're too restrictive or you're too permissive, We, we don't quite like you, we want to say, No, you're you're welcome at the table even though you might not invite us over to your house for dinner. That, that's the kind of church we want to be, is to have this Pauline impulse and Christ-like impulse towards unity. Now, that doesn't mean that anything and everything goes. Um, Jesus had harsh words for people who compromised the, the gospel of the kingdom. Paul did as well, both for personal holiness issues and for doctrinal convictions. So he at times said, send these people out of the church. stop Tolerating these false teachers, don't tolerate these individuals who are pursuing um, sin in their lives. You need to call people to discipleship. Well, we we need to grab onto that as well. The problem is for many of us that we like to draw very clear lines with a lot of unearned confidence. Um, part of this is our cultural setting. We live in the United States of America that has a wonderful history of claiming territory and drawing lines and saying, we're the best, we're the best nation in the world, I have the best family in the world, everybody else is not good, we're, we're awesome. Well, that's just the impulse that we have because of the air that we breathe, Breathe, but it's not really fitting with the, the Bible in the, the way the Bible talks about Christian community. Over and over again, the biblical authors subvert their cultural inclinations. And the Bible does that for us as well. So let me give you an example. Um, Think about how often the New Testament authors talk about humility. They call people to be humble, to uh, share in the humility of Christ. Well, that term is common to us. We like that term. We say it all the time. We even have really nice things, you know. Being humble isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less often. You know, Lewis, and others will equip us with good good ways to think about this. But in the ancient world, saying be humble was like tantamount to being like a dirty word, to uh, saying something uncouth, something that no one would like. Uh, That humility was considered a cultural vice, not a virtue. And the Bible is subverting that ancient culture. I think even though we've adopted that language— We are just as allergic to humility as the Greco-Roman world was. We don't want to be humble. We want to be right. So what we start to do is we look at other Christians, and we make preemptive judgments about their faithfulness to Christ and their fidelity to the scriptures based on a sampling of their theological positions. We want to know what do they think about Genesis 1, 1 Timothy 2, and the book of Revelation. And if they agree with us, they're in. If they don't, they're out. More than that, when it comes to the formation of our own theology, we have been discipled by our technological age that offers us instant answers with a quick Google or Wikipedia search, and we are discontent with the admonition that we need to study the scriptures, that we need to do the work as we arrive at our doctrinal conclusions. Instead, we want a pastor or a YouTuber or a podcaster to tell us what to think about something, then we latch on to that, and then we tell everyone else, you need to agree with that. And then um, when someone makes a suggestion that you need to actually study what the whole Bible says about this issue, we say, that will take too much time. I don't want to do that. Um, that that's a problem. We, we've been discipled by our technological age, and so we want to speed up, like at the speed of light, our conclusions about something and not take the time to slow our pace of response and theological formation. Um, we might even say coming quickly to a conclusion about a doctrinal issue is is very Christlike. But the problem is when you look at the way that God has shaped his people over time, he has been slowly working his people with his people to turn them into the image of Christ, progressively revealing doctrine at a pace that they can handle it. Well, we are in a privileged position where we have the full revelation of Scripture, we have the revelation of Jesus Christ, but we have to like slow cook in that to arrive at our theological conclusions. We, we can't Google something and then adopt that position. So even on the matters that we've talked about in this class, I think all of us have an impulse just to have an opinion on it. Well, I want to push you to slow response, to think about these things carefully, and maybe even to say, over the next year, I'm going to think about these things, what it should look like for a church to be unified with diversity of opinion. So I've put together a curriculum for you. And, and I've measured it out so that you can spend only 19.39 minutes, five weekdays a week, to be able to get through this curriculum. All right? So this stack of books I want to talk through, there are 1,681 pages. That means you would read 32.32 pages per week. 6.46 pages per weekday. And if it takes you three minutes a page, Monday through Friday, that's 19.39 minutes each evening that you would read. That's less than a 20-minute TV show. So, I think it's possible. It's doable. But it's not quick. Okay, and And this is what I'm trying to call people in our church to do for all of their theological conclusions. We can't be experts in everything, and we can't ascertain everything quickly. It takes time. So, here are my recommendations. And this is my only caveat recommendation. I just got this book in the mail and read the first chapter last night. I think it's really good so far. But I might disagree with the rest of the chapters. So it might be awful. So if you read this in chapters two through eight are bad, uh, sorry, but chapter one is great. Uh, Mending a Fractured Church, How to Seek Unity with Integrity. Uh, it's a multiple authors contributing for each chapter. I think it's really, really good, really helpful, really easy to understand. I've already recommended this one. Some of you have read it. Portland, Finding the Right Hills to Die on. Deals with theological triage, gets into those four questions. He gives some case studies. You might disagree with him, and that's okay. You need to read intelligently and not just assuming that everyone's right about everything that they write about. Van Hooser, Hearers and Doers. It's targeted towards pastors, good for every Christian. There are some books that you can just read the first line and last line of every paragraph, and you get what they're going to say. You know, He he writes in a way where you need to read every single word. It, this book is really, really valuable. I've probably read it five times now, and I keep returning to it because it's that good. Um, Nicelli and Crowley, Conscience. I'll give a caveat on here. I think that conceptually, this is a great book. I don't like what they do with a lot of things in here because they conflate Romans 14 and 15 and 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 and make them say the same thing when Paul's addressing totally different issues. So in Romans 14 and 15, there are people who feel like they're sinning if they don't do something or if they do something, right? Um, So the weak conscience is someone who feels guilt for participating or not participating in something. In 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, the person with the weak conscience feels zero guilt for participating in worship of idol meat, you know, eating meat offered to idols. So the weak person in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 is like, bring it on. We can have Jesus and idols. Awesome. Well, that's a different kind of weakness than Romans 14 through 15. They they conflate them, and it gets kind of confusing. But the concepts in here are really, really good. Um, So I keep giving the book out, even though I don't like what they do. Uncomfortable by Brett McCracken. There's a chapter in here that makes me uncomfortable. It's chapter, well, I don't remember which chapter. It is. Oh, chapter six. Okay, read that chapter and don't think about it too hard. Okay, but this book is really helpful. Um, the church, the local church, is not primarily about you being comfortable every time you come in here. Um, it's not primarily about you uh, cultivating an environment that is meeting all of your preferences. Um, I try to tell people regularly, there are things that we do at our church that I don't like. And if I got to have my way, we would do it differently. There are things that I am uncomfortable about sometimes and uh, things that don't meet my preferences. All of us should be able to say that, okay? Uh, Because that's how you're going to feel in the new creation as you worship with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We're going to talk about this a little bit in our family discussion forum, but if, if we are saying, hey, we want to be an evangelistic church, Burnsville is filled with people from all the nations, and we want to see them worshiping with us, and we love cultural diversity, uh, but then as soon as something happens that is a little outside of our comfort zone, and we are, like, shutting that down, saying this is bad because I'm uncomfortable— How do you think you're going to be comfortable if we actually evangelize and God gives us fruitful ministry and we see people from across cultures here? Well, we have to think about being like having the training wheels on, and then um, being ready to handle people from other backgrounds. Uh, So maybe I, you know, this is going out on on a limb, but I would say maybe sometimes God doesn't let certain churches have fruitful evangelistic ministries, because all that church would do is try to teach a Christianity that has little to do with Christ and everything to do with someone's comfortable comfortability. Well, God doesn't want to add people to our church to make them look like Aaron, um, to, to share all of Aaron's preferences, to, to have it exactly what I would like. Christianity would be really lame if that were the case, okay? Hopefully uh, we can see that this book is helpful. This is a harder read, Baptists in the Christian Tradition, and I would commend it especially to those of you who really prize your Baptist identity, because I think what's happened is this. Um, people say, I want to like propagate the Baptist tradition, but what they mean is, I want to propagate the feel of the church that I grew up at, which represents about 50 years of Baptist tradition, not the entirety of it. So I met with someone this past week who was asking us, "Why do you have a plurality of elders? Why don't deacons run your church? That's the Baptist way." So I was explaining, "That's not the Baptist way. That's the Baptist way of the last 50 to 70 years. But if you look at American history, there's a good reason why American Baptists have had deacons to run a church. It's because as the frontier was spreading, different denominations were, you know, starting churches. Presbyterians would say, if you want to be a pastor, you need to go back to the East Coast and be in school for seven years, and then we'll appoint you at a church and we'll have equipped you to lead a church. Well, Baptists said, hey, get out there. There are 10 churches that don't have pastors. So you're not really a pastor, you're a preacher. So you go from church to church and you preach on Sundays. The deacons will take care of the day-to-day business of the church. So if we look at like American Baptist history, that's how Baptist churches functioned because they were frontier churches. And then that got written in as Baptist tradition, even though it's not. Look at British Baptists, East Coast Baptists, that's not the case. This book will be helpful for you thinking about what it actually means to be a Baptist, not what it means to be a Baptist over the last 50 years. Um, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's talking about life in a seminary context, during wartime, uh, when there is, like, the true church is, well, what they're saying is the true church, is flying the Nazi flag in in their assembly, okay? It's been co-opted by the Nazis. They started the Confessing Church in an underground seminary for that. He's talking about life together there. I think that would be really helpful for us to think about life as exiles. Um, Bonhoeffer saw it clearly because the Nazi flag was showing them clear distinctions. Um, We don't see it as clearly because we can integrate Americanism and Christianity a little too closely sometimes, so we need to see it a little more clearly. He helps with that. Finally, Bonhoeffer, Discipleship. This Or the the popular translation is called The Cost of Discipleship. Really, really helpful in thinking about what it means to follow Jesus, to not just try to grab onto Christ's benefits, but to actually grab onto Christ himself. So that's my year-long curriculum for you. Five nights a week, 20 minutes. You know, that's all you have to do. And I think you'll find yourself enriched and helped along the way. As we talk about these doctrinal issues, I want you to ask the question, or when you come across disagreements with other Christians, I want you to ask, how would Paul deal with this? I think that's a good question to ask. You can't know perfectly, but you can look at the way Paul dealt with different issues and you can arrive at a pretty good answer, but it's going to take some work. So, for example, if you, if you said, how would Paul deal with the issue of circumcision? You're not going to find one answer. In some cases, Paul would say, you are compromising the gospel if you pursue circumcision. At Other times, he's going to say, hey, Timothy, you need to get circumcised as a 20-year-old man. So, when you ask how Paul would deal with an issue, you need to broaden your data and understand that he dealt with different issues differently. So in some cases, he's saying, I will never eat meat if it would cause my brother to sin. But also, by the way, I want to let you know that whenever I leave this church where people are sinning on this, I'm going to go to another church and be all things to all people, and I'm going to eat meat. You might accuse me of hypocrisy. You need to catch on to what I'm trying to do here. So so when we ask, how would Paul deal with an issue? We have to think a little bit multidimensionally, not Paul said circumcision is bad. False. In Romans, he says, what profit is there in circumcision or in receiving the law? Everything in every way. Also, don't compromise the gospel by leaning on this. Okay, so so you have to broaden the way you think about theological disagreement. Finally, I want to warn against championing one aspect of Christian discipleship in a way that will detract from the other aspects of Christian discipleship. This is what I mean. To be a disciple of Christ involves doctrine or orthodoxy. It also involves your affections, orthopathy, praxy, that's it, Uh, and then behavior, obedience, orthopraxy, what you do. Some Christians are going to be very inclined towards clear doctrinal statement and debate, and they're going to ignore affections in practice. Well, when you overly champion one, and the other two are weakened. It actually weakens your doctrine too because it will become dead or deformed orthodoxy. We'll talk about that in the sermon. Other Christians say, I just, and, and I could give examples. Maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. Right affections can't stand without doctrine in behavior. Right behavior can't stand without affections in doctrines. These are all interrelated. Okay? So some of you are more doctrine people. Some of you are more affections people. Some of you are more doer people. You need the other people who are inclined in the other direction. That's why I'm saying don't cut someone off because they don't hold to every doctrine that you want them to hold to. Don't cut someone off because you don't feel like they are swelling up with the right affections that you think they should have, or same thing with practices. We need each other to um, compensate for each other's weaknesses and to lean into each other's strengths. We'll be a stronger church if we can do that. We'll be a more comfortable church if we decide I'm going to just emphasize and champion one of these things. I, I would say, you know, for my brief survey in my limited life, uh, churches can grow quickly by leaning into one of these and their own articulation of it. And that will last for 20 to 50 years. And then that church is going to die. Okay, I think as we've read Crystal Lake's history, that's what happened. When we look around at a lot of churches, you know, when when we were doing this thing, I created a list of 17 churches that I thought were on the brink of death. And, and some of them told me so. They're like, yeah, in five years, we'll just close. And they were okay with it. Well, when you look at their history, they're, they're grabbing onto one of these at the expense of the other two. All right, I want to finally talk about this thing that I've been calling a gravitational center that can provide and I want to clarify what I am saying and what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you can't have an opinion on second or third or fourth level doctrines. That's not what I'm saying. I think it would be wonderful if you all studied out these issues and had um, deeply rooted, biblically driven, well thought out conclusions about every doctrine in the world. But the reality is, we are finite. We're limited. We're all generalists. That's what Christians are. That's what pastors are. We're generalists, okay? We need seminary professors to become specialists on certain issues. We need specialists in eschatology and ecclesiology and soteriology, but we're not probably those people. We're, we're generalists, but you can still hold opinions even as generalists. You just have to hold them uh, in proportion to the work that you put into it, right? So, Um, I I just want to say you can have opinions. You can arrive at doctrinal conclusions on these other issues. I'm not saying that you can't do that. So if you heard me saying we need to identify gravitational center and find the lowest common denominator, that's not what I'm saying. Please don't misrepresent. I'm I'm saying hold these third-level positions, arrive at something, but be more committed to the gravitational center where other Christians who disagree on with you on those matters also agree. Because that's where the deep heart of unity will be found. So I'm saying lean into that. Go deep there, and then everything else is going to fall in place. Because when you walk out these doors, no one's going to care about what your timetable for the end times is. And you're going just to be fighting in your evangelism to say, God is doing something in the world in Jesus Christ, and he's going to return, and he will judge the living and the dead well, that's what you want to get at. You don't want to say, to be a Christian, you need to believe all these other issues. Um, I am not saying when I'm talking about a gravitational center that just anything goes. I'm not saying that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you can nod your head to what we say in our statement of faith. There are lots of beliefs out there that don't fit in our church because they're not Christian. Okay, so that's one level where I'm saying, you're not going to work here. There's another um, ring where I would say these people are Christians, but because we actually have to put something into practice, if if they're willing to join with us and not be annoying, they can be here even though we're going to do something different with them. They are Christians. Maybe this is the best home for them, even though we're not going to do what they might want us to do. So I've used the example of, like, if, if you are a continuationist, you think we ought to have a prophecy mic in our service, and you people should be speaking in tongues, and they don't even mean foreign language, but ecstatic utterances. Well, I want to say to that person, we disagree with you, and I'd like to convince you of my position, but you're welcome here if you're not going to cause a problem. If you're not going to stand up and start um, uttering something out, you can be a happy member here, and I want to convince you to change your mind. So there are issues where I'm saying if they can affirm the gravitational center, they can be here even if they disagree, but I want to convince them to change their mind on certain issues. I'm not saying that I want to change people's minds on every issue. Okay, So this is what I'm afraid people might hear. There will be new believers, and we want to get them to affirm the basic gravitational center. First of all, that's an misunderstanding of the gravitational center. It's not basic, lowest common denominator. It's it's the deep, rich origin of life for that doctrine. I don't want you to hear me saying, yeah, we'll tolerate people being in the membership. They're immature Christians, but we want them to grow to maturity, and by that we mean affirming every preference and doctrine that Aaron has or that you have. That's not what I'm saying. We want to disciple them into the gravitational center, not disciple them into a pre-trib or post-trib or no rapture position. that That's not what we're getting. Okay, so, so you might hear me saying, hey, let's let them in the door, and then we'll convince them to hold all these third-level issues that I hold. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we want to drive them deep into the doctrinal center through our discipleship. Does, does that make sense, what I'm saying? And I want to be very clear on this, because I don't want to miscommunicate to you and say, we, we need to have a wide door in to let people in, but to get really in, they've got to go through a really narrow door that lines up to all of our third and fourth level practices. That's not what I'm saying. Um, finally, what I'm trying to say is your declaration of the Christian faith needs to grab a hold of these gravitational centers, and you should remove every other obstacle For people coming to the gospel, that's not part of that gravitational center. So just as Paul said, circumcision maybe needs to happen sometimes, Timothy, but also it's not connected to the gospel. We need to be able to say, well, I believe how I would precisely um, lay out my doctrine of blank might be a good thing for me to do. I might need to arrive at a doctrinal conclusion. But for me to tell someone to be a Christian, you have to grab onto that, that would be wrong. Okay, so for, and I'll keep using eschatology as the example because it's, a, it's an easy one. Um, for me to say, you need to hold my view about how to interpret Revelation to be a true Christian, or maybe we'll even let you in the wide gate to Christianity but not the narrow gate to close fellowship, that would be wrong. Christ would not be pleased with that. Um, we, we need to set that aside. I, I think I've met so many people who leave the faith because they've confused the, the Christian faith with someone's third and fourth level doctrinal position that's been elevated to the essentials. We we cannot be that kind of a church because all that will do is weaken Christianity at large. I don't think the Lord would be pleased with that. Okay, so I've tried to clarify what I'm getting at in this thing. And now it's time for questions and answer. and And please ask whatever you're thinking. I am not going to, like, there, there's no hidden agenda in anything that I'm saying. I'm just trying to be clear about what what we're teaching. So ask your questions. I want, I want to be able to help. It could be about anything that we've discussed over the last five minutes. Julie. I don't know how to articulate this. This will be okay. a bit awkward. And... Well, don't, that's don't okay. It's, it's less awkward than no one's saying it. Okay. Anything. So the word discipleship I hear a lot, or when you were going through the books, what does that mean at this church? Like there are churches that say our discipleship is a systematic curriculum, or what does discipleship mean at this church? I'm glad you asked. asked. Okay. Our brother now is going to do four week Bible class mm-hmm. on discipleship. Okay. After I'm done, okay. whenever I happens to be discussed. But in short answer. Discipleship is following Jesus. So we, okay. we want to grab onto Jesus' words where he calls people to be his disciples. Okay. Fundamentally, to be a disciple is to follow Christ. And to be discipled is to be aided in following Christ. Okay. So sometimes we do this more formally. What we're doing right now. Sometimes informally. We expect everyone to be a disciple of Christ and helping each other follow Jesus. Does that answer it? So it's a little, it's a little more, less systematic, less formula, less curriculum, and more. Hey, come with me. Well, let's walk with Jesus together. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And I know that's frustrating to some people. In fact, when I did my assessment to become a Nam American Mission Board church planner, one of the things they threw down on me for was my conception of discipleship because they wanted a, a discipleship pipeline, and I, I just said. Look, I get, I, I love how that looks on a chart, but that's not, pe- people need you to come alongside of them. And not, you know, so so uh, Ben and I were talking about this in the way that parents raise their kids. There are forming parents who want to say, I'm going to form you from the outside. I'm going to mold you into the image that I want you to be. And then there are cultivators who try to help that person develop and grow. We're, we're a cultivator church when it comes to discipleship, not a... You got to at the cookie cutter of what we're looking for in every area. I think that's a fair representation. I haven't had to articulate it that way before, but that makes sense to yeah. me. All right, well, Julie did something great. So you mentioned when formulating a gap to do so. Yeah. yeah, so last week I said we need to have a Christological articulation of our doctrine. So what does that mean? I, so what I'm trying to get at there is that Jesus is the full revelation of God and, and his will, his word, his way. Jesus is the way, right? So when we talk about doctrinal articulation, we don't want to formulate and express our doctrine as it could be said in a Jewish synagogue. So if the way that we talk about our doctrinal positions could be articulated in a synagogue and everyone would be really happy with us, I want to suggest that it's not Christian doctrine that we're expressing, it's Hebraic doctrine, Jewish, Judaic doctrine. We have Christ, the full revelation of God, and we need to interpret the Old Testament in light of that, and to articulate our doctrine in light of Christ. We also need a Trinitarian expression of doctrine, so we need Father, Son, and Spirit. Some doctrines will have more overt Trinitarian or Christological expressions than others, but all of them should find Christological articulation. So if you pick a doctrine, I can try to give you the Jewish expression and then our Christian expression, Um, but I'm blanking on something that would be helpful. Here's one. Jewish expression of the establishment of the kingdom of God for all of eternity. God will um, raise us, uh, he'll provide warriors who go out and kill all the enemies, and the kingdom of Israel will expand until someday it covers the whole globe. We'll be fruitful and multiply, we'll fill the earth, we'll circumcise people and add them to the covenant, we'll put the Torah into effect, we'll worship at the temple, and the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters are filled with the sea. We say, uh, Jesus defeated every power and authority. Jesus now is adding all nations into his family, not through violence, but through the transformative grace that changes people's hearts so that they're not enemies, but friends, not because we've killed them, but because God has allowed them to put to death the deeds of the flesh in the darkness of their heart, and Christ, God's kingdom, will be um, established finally with the return of Christ. So that's a Christological expression of the establishment of God's kingdom forever, instead of a Jewish expression of the establishment of God's kingdom forever. Does that make sense? You can you maybe do it on marriage? Be a more, yeah. A more ready-grab-on. Yeah, let me do it with marriage, okay? Uh, here, here we go. Uh, Jewish expression of marriage. There was this guy Adam. God made a woman out from him, and the the two were one. They they were the same, and then they became different, and then God made them one in marriage. And theoretically, generally speaking, you should stay one in marriage, but also sometimes you don't like your wife, and she's frustrating to you, and you can divorce her, and um, that's sad. We know it's kind of because of the hardness of our hearts, but really it's because of the hardness of her heart. i mean, a little bit cynical, but the point is marriage is a way of expanding the kingdom of God fundamentally. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and um, you'll have a wife to help you do that. Well, the problem is marriages don't work. They're broken. So Paul says, look, in the same way that God is taking two people, making them one flesh, Jew and Gentile, he's overcome all the hostility. He's showed us what true love and unity and friendship looks like by bringing Jew and Gentile together in so that's the first one-plus union in the New Testament. And he says, now marriage should be based on that, okay? Because it, it reverses the results of the fall where two separate people become one in Christ. So all disagreement can be conquered through the gospel in your marriage. All uh, subjugation, like negative, uh, all women's desire to rage against their husbands and the husband's desire to crush their wife, that is overthrown in the gospel of Christ. So Christologically now our marriages display the unity of the church and Jew and Gentile, but that one flesh union, and then the love that Christ has for his birth. So that's how I would talk about marriage, Christologically. Does that make sense? Okay. So so I want to push more Christological and Trinitarian expressions of doctrine. That that is hard work because we have to keep reading past the Old Testament and then we have to read backwards. Uh, we have to read Christ as the interpretive grip of the Old Testament. Any other questions? So we have time. To... That was a good one, Kristen. I'm trying to give words of affirmation. <laughs> ben? We were committed, I can think of some places. some of this feel like the, the, the rugs being pulled out under us thinking about like well what if someone like this came into the church what if someone like that came into the church like where should we be anchoring, anchoring ourselves in scripture to help us deal with those feelings yeah that's a good question so if we're feeling uncomfortable with someone who showed up at our church or with some of the things I'm talking about where where would we ground ourselves in the scriptures to say, okay, there are some things here that I feel uncomfortable with, and I, I'm i going to be okay. Um, I I think we could look anywhere in the New Testament. That's not helpful. Um, but, but I would say a few places to start. I would start by directing you to John 17, because Jesus expresses a desire for his people who are very, very different to be one, even as he and the Father are one. And he's not suggesting that they iron everything out and look exactly the same, but in diversity and in difference find deep and abiding unity. Um, uh, different, you know, we, we could get Trinitarian with this and talk about the different functions of the triune Godhead in the redemptive plan. Well, even though they're operating in somewhat different ways, functionally, they're one in their essence. We can think about our church that way. We want to reflect Trinitarian diversity and unity. I think that's where maybe these three, we could wrongly say, this is like the Trinity, but, but kind of. You know, we, we have different things that we need to lean into that are helpful. I would want to point you also to uh, like Ephesians 4. Uh, we've been baptized into the one baptism, the one Lord, the one faith, the one God and Father of all. And he's talking to people who are like Jews and Gentiles, these people who are very, very different. More different than any of the differences that you'll ever encounter in our church, I can assure you. Uh, and if Paul is saying this church, where people feel so uncomfortable with their differences, they, they are one in Christ, so like one body. Why is it that we can't say the same? You know, do you think that every person in the church at Ephesus was comfortable? No. Uh, I point you to Romans 14 and 15, where there are individuals who think they need to follow the Jewish character. They, they say, we are in exile. We're God's people in Rome. So we want to look like Daniel. No meat, no water. Pray towards Jerusalem. Follow all the holy things. And there are other Christians who say, man, we were pagans and God saved us. And, and now we know that like the earth is his and all things are ours in Christ Jesus. And these people are in church together. And Paul is telling them, stop eating at separate tables. Vegetarians, Stop keeping these wine and meat imbibing people out of your homes. Come together and realize you shouldn't be looking down your noses. Well, that would be uncomfortable for everyone involved. Uh, when, When the Jewish family who this weekend is celebrating Passover, and you're saying, I don't celebrate Passover. I'm a Christian. I'm not a Jew. When they invite you to their home for Passover, don't judge them and don't refuse their invitation. Show up and love them. A Jewish family who thinks that you shouldn't, like, um, you know, violate the Passover, in, in and you had prearranged arranged with a Gentile Christian to come over to their home for dinner, and you didn't look at your calendar far enough ahead of time, and you realize they happened to fall on Passover, you can still show up at their home and have a normal dinner. That would not be comfortable, but that's what Paul commands. So I think realizing. Whatever uncomfortability you feel will be way less than the uncomfortability of the the first Christians might be a measure of solace. Does that answer? Okay. Any follow-ups on that or other questions? Ted? It's it's difficult for me sometimes in encountering, visiting Christians to our church to say too much or to make them feel uncomfortable because. Sort of feel like I have to explain the positions of our church. Can you help me to kind of yeah. understand maybe a balance to strike on yeah. that? Uh, to not, you know, to, to try to try to meet them where they're at. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they have questions, and I have to be honest about where our church stands. But yep, I don't know. I, yeah. So how different. do you deal with visitors who come in? Ask me a question that a visitor has asked you. How does your church do worship? Is it okay for us to, um, you know, dance around or, or lift hands or other things like sure. that? Or, or how, you know, what, um, you know, what does what does your church believe about, you know, say, um, I don't know, it could be just about, uh, or uh, for instance, uh, Bible translations. Yes. I've encountered people who will come in and they'll be real big on a Bible translation or other things and it's it's so tempting for me to jump into something and I just keep my mouth shut I know Um, but then they've got a lot of questions on that how would you how would you yeah okay I think I know where you're going it, and I think I can okay so um, there are four C's that you all need to have in your mind okay when, when you're answering people's questions First, you need to just be confident. Don't hem and haw a lot. So that's C number one. Just be confident. C number two, uh, be concise. When people are asking a question, they're not looking for you to quote the length of and systematic Theology on that issue. They're looking for a concise, helpful subject. <laughs> so uh, be <laughs> confident, be concise, be clear. Uh, just say what you mean to say. You know, don't, don't um, like, muddle the issues for them. Just be really clear. And then be churned. That's, that's our four C. Uh, be, be charitable. Re- say it in a way that is kind and loving. And some answers are going to be more off putting than others. If someone came into our church and asked me, what do you guys think about Bible translations? I love the nasty. I would say, I love that you love the nasty. I think that's a great translation. We use the Christian Standard Bible. Uh, but people here use a bunch of different translations. But mostly we just hope people are reading the Bible. Like, the that answer might not be satisfying to that person but it's what is actually true of our church. And I think that's clear, concise, confident, terrible, terrible, right? So so I would just always tend towards that direction. Uh, I don't want us to say, we want to get in a mode of trying to promote all of our distinctiveness. How how are we different from every other faithful church in the area? We're so much better than them at all these things, or they're so bad at this. Like I don't want us to talk that way. Um, If someone asks, like, how how do you guys do discipleship? Well, uh, we do it in a variety of ways, but really we just want to come alongside people and help them to know and love and obey Jesus. There are three things. Doctrine, affection, obedience. So, does that help? Yeah. Um, What denomination? Well, that's a little tricky for us because we're a church restart with the church that's been part of the SBC for 50-plus years, but we have members from different denominational backgrounds. And, and if you're looking for denominational distinctives here, we're Baptists in that we think you should be baptized after you've come to faith. But it's really hard to know what a Baptist is because there are like a hundred different kinds of Baptists. Uh, I read an article that identified 37,000 different denominations for a while so to say your denomination doesn't really help that much talk about what we believe really, okay we love the bible we love one another and uh, we we love sharing the gospel and uh trying to meet the needs does does that make sense so uh, yeah no um, so every church sure has their own conviction uh, at this church Are open to you said that some people or some people in congregation or maybe elders hold different uh, views on um, the beginning of the world um, seven days creationism a lot of other churches like i just watched a youtube video the other day and said that said uh, like watch out for these churches who don't believe in 24 hour yeah so how do you explain to someone, well, this is why I think this, this condition is more important than this condition? Probably, yeah, I mean, on the spot with someone, it's a little bit hard, but that's what this whole class has been doing. Right. Right. So I think for someone like that, you know, I follow up with a visitor that says, hey, I really want to know what your church believes about creation i will say, hey, I'd love to talk about that. Fundamentally, we believe that God is the author of creation, that Christ sustains all things, and I'd love to talk with you more. Can we get coffee? This week? You know, like, I, I think all of these things that we want to, to like, draw our lines and defend our position or, or push some away in a moment, these are longer conversations that we have to have <laughs> instead of making preemptive judgments or aiding someone's preemptive judgments. I want them to say, come and see. Come see Christ in our midst. You know, we want to worship in a way, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that the visitors know that God really is among you. And then I want to talk with them at more length about these things. And I want to tell them, if you're a literal 6 day, not seven-day creationism, God didn't create on the seventh day, right? <laughs> but six-day creationist, I want to say, you're welcome. And and that's, you know, I don't mean this to sound pejorative, but that's not an unintelligent view. My friend always tells me that when he disagrees with me and he doesn't like my crashing out, like, oh, that's not an unintelligent view, but you're done. That's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you can be a happy six-day creationist here, and you cannot be that here, because it's almost never going to come up. And there are good arguments for both sides, you know, so I, I want to talk to people like that. But we're out of time here. If you have questions about these things, I don't want you to feel like you can't hang out with me and, and ask about them. I really love talking about this stuff, and I kind of want to know how people are processing it. so even if you don't have specific questions, I, I'd love to talk. but for three minutes over, your uh, artist is.